Okie, hello there, and welcome to the Fox Den. Nistu Anagok Biksipidaki. I am Andrea Truejoy Fox, your host for Talks with a Fox. I'm happy you have joined me on this colorful adventure of self-discovery and lifelong learning. Throughout my journey, I have met some amazing human beings who are living inspirational and intentional lives as they fulfill their purpose and share their gifts with the world. I am excited to share these conversations with you, as well as some stories from my life as a Blackfoot woman, Nitsa Dabyaki, and as a teacher and artist who is navigating through this exciting and beautiful world we live in, challenges and all. So grab a tea or coffee and get ready to feel inspired as you reflect on your own exciting journey and your connection to the world. We are in this together, and there is so much for us to learn and share. Let's do this. Be sure to stop by our Instagram page at Talks with the Fox Podcast and our Facebook page as well at Talks with the Fox Podcast. And of course, our Buzzsprout website. And that way you can always keep up with all the updates. It means so much to me that you are on this journey with us. Hello, everybody. My name is Andrea Truejoy Fox. I'm your host for Talks with the Fox podcast. We are here in the territory of my ancestors, the Blackfoot Nitsitapi in Mohkins, which means the elbow here in Calgary, Alberta, also known as. Today, I have a very, very special guest, somebody whose journey I have been following for many years and admiring and who has also really informed my understandings about the ways that we need to how we need to move in this world to create change and open pathways especially for our indigenous children our book eggs you may know her as dr cindy blackstock she is a member of the gitsan first nations born in burns lake british columbia and she's here on a very special mission where she will be part of a very sacred, special ceremony happening in our sister tribe, the Siksaga Nation, to be part of the repatriation of a very special object. I'm going to call it an object. And it is a book that was developed in 1923. It was created. I'll let Cindy tell us more about that, but it does have a special place in my heart because it's tied to my community as well. The Blood Reserve, also known as Ghana, which means many chiefs in Blackfoot. So welcome today, Cindy. Thank you. I'm just really excited to be here. Thank you. It's, it's such an honor to sit and share space with you. It's been amazing. I read your tweets and, you know, I'm always thinking, oh, what's, what's Cindy up to now? And how is she really helping to recreate this world that we live in as we look at how things are unfolding and in a truly hopeful way, as daunting as the stats are with what we see, what's happening in First Nations communities. That's why we're here. I love hearing your stories because they give me hope and so many other people. So first of all, Cindy, I also do want to congratulate you on your most recent award with McGill University, where you are a professor. Thank you. I believe you attained the Social Work Golden Award. Mm-hmm. And the gold medal. Gold medal. Yeah. <laughs> Can you 
tell me about that? Well, it's the social sciences and humanities. And what it is, is it's uh, just recognizing uh, the kind of what they consider the landmark researcher of that year across the country. But what I was happy about is actually I don't do a lot of generation of new knowledge. I really look at what was been written down by generations of people that came before us on how to solve these problems. And then I joined together with so many other people to actually put those recommendations into action. That's really what I do is I try to implement the solutions that are already on the books or that have been handed down from one generation to another. And um, it was good to see the Research Council recognizing that type of work and also just the recognition of, um, of the types of knowledge that we get passed down that influences the way that we, we, we do that implementation. That is not like the mainstream system. It can be done differently. It can be done, as Elmer Kershane said, um, in a way that achieves loving justice. It's mm. a beautiful way to put it and help us understand what informs the work that you do. I would like to know, we're just going to take it back a little bit. All right. What was little Cindy like? Oh, my God. <laughs> well, you got a picture growing up. Like, I mean, I literally grew up in the bush or in very small towns all over northern BC. We moved, I think, 15 times before I was 16 years old with the fire seasons, right? Mm -hmm. You know, this will age me, but in the days of lookout towers and everything else like this. But I was always a social kid. I was a talker. My poor mom would try to, you know, just kind of lock herself in the bathroom so she gets kind of moments to peace. <laughs> it, it, it just was nonstop. And so growing up in remote and rural communities, so um, I always wanted to see other people. I was always talking to other people. And in Northern BC at that time, my mother is uh, non-Indigenous, my father's First Nations. And it was all, it was, I was treated very differently when I was with my father or when I was identified as a First Nations girl or an Indian girl is what they would call us back then. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden people expected a lot less of me mm. when I was First Nations. I was going to grow up to be on welfare. I was going to grow up to be a drunk. I was going to do all these things. I didn't want to be any of that. Mm -hmm. I had a different reality in mind. And yet all around me in my community, you could see what were the symptoms of residential schools, but no one was talking about it back then, right? It was like this, this dark cloud that just was around and for which you couldn't get words for, but you knew that it was getting in the way of people's hopes and dreams and may even get in the way of my hopes and dreams. But my first job, Andrea, was when I was four years old. I was pine cone picking. So that's what we do up in the northern part of BC is you get yourself a gunny sack and you pick all these pine cones. And if you got a whole gunny sack full of them, then yeah, I think I got like $5 or something. It felt like winning the lottery. That was a lot back that then. That was a <laughs> lot of money. And then one of my uh, distant relatives on my mom's side, because no one in my immediate family had even gone to high school, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, they, they came back and they had just got into this place called UBC, University of British Columbia. 
and this place where you go and learn whatever you wanted. I I just remember I was like five years old. I could see like the glasses were like at my eye level, right? <laughs> and I just thinking, how many pine cones do I have to pick? I am going to this place. This is going to happen. And for whatever reason, I just always had that vision that that's what was going to go on. But throughout that journey, I was always talking to people about injustice. I was fascinated, even as a young kid, about the horrendous treatment of black persons in the United States. But I would see on the news the burning of crosses by the KKK. And I talked to the townspeople, mm -hmm. and they all agreed that was terrible. But those were the same people, Andrea, who thought I'd grow up to be on welfare. And so that whole puzzle always captured me. Wow. You know, it's interesting you say that because in their eyes, I'm not a racist, but they don't realize their preconceived assumptions about us is racist, you know? That's right. And I mean, the other thing about me is like, I always love fashion. I don't know why, <laughs> but I mean, I grew up in the bush. I'd be out there fishing, moose hunting with black platen shoes and a dress on. It, it was just like that was little Cindy back in the day. Wow. It sounds like a, a book, you know, a, show, a great start for a children's story. <laughs> and as my sister would say, she said, you know, you were a bit of a princess. I, 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 you know, when it came to kind of like chopping the wood and stuff like that, I'd always find something else to do, right? <laughs> wow. Um, I'm curious, what did they do with the pine cones? The white Reforestation. Was... Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. that was the... Back in the day, because my yeah. dad worked for the Forest Service, all right? Mm. So you get the pine cones and plant more trees. Wow. It was so interesting. Like, this was always around me. It always like a, was like a magnet, Andrea, pulling me. But it mm. wasn't what I wanted to choose for myself. Mm. When I got out of high school, I was going to go into the sciences. I would always try to go into other things. But it was always this pull that would pull me back. Mm -hmm. And uh, I ran into um, an elder one time who told me that um, my life was going to be like a Y, like a letter Y. And he says, you know, you're very logical and social. So you like going down the straight part of the Y because you can be with people, talk with people. He says, but there will come a time in your life when everyone will be going to the right but you will be pulled to the left and you must go. He says, because the ancestors are calling you. And I think this is true of many of us, Andrea. Mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. that there's, you know, there's, there's something that keeps pulling, a theme that keeps happening to us. And um, what I found is our, our biggest opportunity in life is to surrender to that, right? And it's so scary because for like you're talking about being scared of doing this great podcast and look at you now. But I was I was so scared of public speaking. I was a talker, but put me in front of a crowd and it was like wasn't going to happen. I would have never thought I would be doing this. Wow. I think that's just the most. A beautiful and surprising thing about life when creator yes. does bring us to that place of. Here I am now. This is what you are doing. This is who you are. And it's when you surrender to that, whatever that magnetic force is for you, 
right? Yes. I think many of us have that, right? Yeah. It's something that, like, you know, you're, you've got a gift in the arts or you're, you're gifted with, with um, you know, with traditional teachings. Or you're gifted with, with wellness. And so you become a doctor or, or a nurse or something like this or a teacher. Like, there's, there's things that we just have about ourselves. It's those gifts that the ancestors put into us, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, you know, I started out as a teacher in my career, and but prior to that, I almost went to be a social worker. Oh. My dad was a social worker, and growing up, we would see him, you know, work in the community, and when he'd be transporting some of the children, we'd be with him, and just seeing his heart go into it and connecting with our community, it really touched my heart, and I remember I was, I do remember I was in grade seven and I started to think about university because both my parents went Mm -hmm. and I was like, that's, I'm going to university, but I don't know what for yet. But I remember that evening we were in our kitchen and I told my parents, I'm going to university and this is the map. This is the route I'm going to take. I wasn't the strongest student in school. In fact, I didn't like school, but I was like, I know I have to do some things (laughs) to get there. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I said, I'm going to either be a social worker or a teacher because my mom was a teacher. So, you know, but like you say, the magnet, just, it pulled yeah. me into working with kids in that capacity. But I see the two as just, you're a teacher, Cindy, and, you know, the social work of what teachers do, it's, it's all interconnected. Yeah, and in some ways, these Western titles are, are, are uh, mm. they're kind of like, they build walls around us that are unnecessary. Yes. I've never really identified myself as a, by a profession. I have four different degrees in four different disciplines. I just, I just do what I do. And I'm not sure there's a word for it, right? Mm-hmm. Other than getting into a lot of trouble, I think is probably the best way to describe <laughs> what I do now. <laughs> well, I heard you talking on another uh, interview about you know, getting into good trouble. Yeah, yeah. I think that that's right. I think John Lewis had it right is, uh, you know, any fool can get into trouble for doing the wrong thing, right? That's for amateur. <laughs> but getting into trouble for doing the right thing mm. and having, um, having the discipline to do right instead of trying to be right. Yes, I love That's that. a big difference. Mm. I didn't always have that. I had to develop it and be told to develop it over time. <laughs> we get there eventually. <laughs> eventually you get there. <laughs> Well, well I, I love the image you've painted about young Cindy, little Cindy. Um, so great. Tell me about your parents. Yeah, my mom's name is Helen. She's still, thankfully, still with us. So I'm going to go see her at the end of the month. So my mom was, uh, you know, she grew up in a little place called Copper. It's outside a terrace along the railway tracks. And uh, her dad died very young, so pretty much was raised by a single mom. But my mom is so wicked smart, right? And she was taught by um, some carrier elders who took her under her wing, right? Because it was a single mom with three kids. And these, uh, so they taught her a lot of the traditional kind of medicines. Like she could weave pine cone needles and all the rest of it. Wow. My dad is Gitsan. And so uh, you got to think he he became one of if we think the first, but it may if not the first one of the first uh, First Nations forest rangers in British Columbia. Wow! So that was in about the 1950s, 
and uh, then took up, you know, this kind of moving all over the place on these rural and remote areas, right? Um, and my dad was, was very hardworking, um, but he had some demons in his life that he never was able to, never able to leave behind until the day he died. Unfortunately for him, he just wasn't able to get to the space where he could reach out and get the help uh, that he deserved. Like many of our people. Like you know, many people, we yeah. Don't, still, in 2023, we don't have that privilege to go get well the way the rest of society tells us to or is able to, especially when we're living in communities where we don't have a basic human right of clean drinking water. That's it. And sometimes we don't give ourselves the permission either, right? Mm. You know, there's all those uh, nonsense teachings about <laughs> that came from the church, that came from all those other influences about um, that, you know, having, um, having mental health challenges is something that, you know, is to be embarrassed about and, you know, that's stigmatized. And so there's still, still that's out there, right? And um, it's getting less, thankfully, and uh, we need to continue working for it. But I think people who grew up in particularly that generation where mental health wasn't something that was really spoken about and it was considered to be something to be ashamed of, I think it's really difficult. Mm -hmm. It is. And... But there's hope, you know, in, in someone like yourself who is comfortable talking about these things and somebody who's even listening right now, just hearing you validate that can help us bring our own walls down. Like you said, that willingness to do it for yeah. ourselves to get the help. Yeah. And, you know, like I've gone for help when I've needed it throughout my life. Like I am not ashamed of that at all. Mm -hmm. It was a good thing for me to do. And sometimes, you know, the help is a different thing. So sometimes, sometimes it's good to go and see a therapist. Mm -hmm. And sometimes mm -hmm. it's just good to go and have a nice long walk. Yes. Or, you know, for me, I love thrift shops, right? So like, that's also good. Yeah, yeah That absolutely. cheesies and bath bombs always helps. Oh, yes. <laughs> Um, so what can we, what do you see for a Canada without the Indian Act? Because mm. we know what it looks like right now, oh, yeah. but what do you see when that day comes? Oh, I, I have a status card and I have not renewed it. Um, I think it's expired 20 years ago now. I refuse to go in there. I just, I just think, why would we accept the government of Canada saying who we are? I am not going to, these are like racial identity cards. So for me, I just, I can't wait till we get away from the Indian Act. Mm. And I think that the first step of doing that is actually setting ourselves free from it. You know, it's not waiting for Canada to repeal it. It's simply by saying, we're no longer going to be defined by it. And I really think that that's really what self-determination is about, is when we declare ourselves free. We start acting free. We don't negotiate that. We do whatever we can to claim that space in our own minds, our own spirits, and in our own communities. Mm, I love that. And are you seeing that happening right now? I Starting to, starting okay. to. But yeah. I'm also really worried that Canada often calls things jurisdiction and really it's offloading uh, in the guise of jurisdiction. 
For example, on child welfare with the, uh, you know, Canada's C92 as it's known, right? Mm -hmm. Because the name's too long and bureaucratic. (laughs) So, (laughs) you know, where they give you, they're saying to communities, you can have jurisdiction in child welfare. Well, my question is always, is there such a thing? You know, when I've been so honored to be a part of communities and uh, where they've been dialoguing about their traditional laws, there's clan laws, there's family mm-hmm. laws, but I haven't heard of one child welfare law. Mm-hmm. They're all interconnected, right? And so I think, why is Canada saying we can have a child welfare law? Why can't we just claim our family laws or our clan laws? Like we, Those are the laws that were passed down to us. That's where the jurisdiction really hides. So I, I, I think it's a time for all of us to really recenter and think about what jurisdiction means and uh, getting it clear from our communities about, because everyone's got different pieces of these traditional realities, right? And as my aunt Thelma used to remind me, no one ever had it all. There were always people who, had, who were gifted with specific songs, with specific roles in community. It was only when everybody did their part that you had the full picture. Well, the same thing today. We need to bring back the community members, get them to vision what a healthy family, child, and nation looks like. And through that process, we start to see the laws. And then we look at the, that wall, that, what, those ideas. And the ones I've seen, Andrea, about 80% of it, you don't need any money or any permission to do. And that's where you start implementing jurisdiction. And that's how the Indian Act goes away. Amen. Okay, chief and council members out there, (laughs) there's your recipe. (laughs) It's doable and it's It's happening. Yeah. And we have to, you know, change our own behavior in relationship to Canada. So I've been working a lot of kind of thinking about, well, what ways do I actually reinforce that colonial behavior, right? Mm. So I, I don't do photo ops. That's their currency, right? I'm not doing photo ops. Um, our organization, the Caring Society, it's not funded by the government. We turn down government money because they are, we have an ethical screen. It says anyone who's hurting children, we won't accept money from. Canada's hurting our kids. We're not accepting money from them. So you can break these patterns. And um, reset the relationship in a way that uh, allows you to do the honorable work, uh, in my case, working with kids and families. Mm, I love that. I think that's such a solid way to just, is this a yes or no when it comes to funding? Because that can be a controversial theme that comes up for many organizations, you know needing to access funding but then saying okay where is this coming from and what are the strings attached to that right you know there's always strings attached to it all right pretendians we need we need to talk (laughs) um thinking about our indigenous scholars and students many post-secondary students who are applying for those scholarships that's kind of what i'm hearing in the different circles right now they're applying and Wondering, you know, when somebody who's claiming Indigenous identities and they're accessing funding, what do we do about that? Well, I think it's straight up fraud if it's somebody in an academic circle. So my view is if you, as soon as you apply and use your First Nations Métis or Inuit status, 
as a um, qualification for the position and to give you legitimacy in that position, then you've got to be able to back it up. And not just self-declaration, but having the community recognize you. Um, that both things have to go together. Mm. Failure to do that is, would be the same as if I said I had a degree I didn't have. Right? To me, those are very equivalent things in academic circles. In terms of the scholarships, we actually have scholarships. We have one for Jordan's principal. Um, and that actually is funded by uh, Canada um, uh, obstructed the process of the tribunal and they were ordered to pay us $100,000. So we used it for Jordan's principal scholarship. But we just simply ask uh, folks who are coming in and applying for it to um, provide some kind of identification. They can provide, if they want, they can provide their status card. They can provide a letter from their nation. Both of those are good. But there's easy ways to be able to do this. And folks like Kim Tallbear and Jean Tillet uh, are writing all this stuff down so that we can solve this problem. Because mm -hmm. I think these people do a lot of damage. They, um, they not only take up space, they take up influence. And they also, like for some of the students with Mary Ellen Trapel-Lafon, for example, you know, like I felt really bad for all those students that mm -hmm. she'd worked with over the years. And they thought they were learning from an Indigenous scholar. Well, that turned out likely to not be the case, right? That can be very triggering for many of our people, you know, when they realize that somebody they entrusted, because for a lot of us, building trustful relationships, it takes time. And if there's been tra traumatic experiences in our lives or something that has hindered us to be able to develop trusting relationships, and then we do, and then we find out this person isn't who they are, you know, that's... That really impacts our, our people. It can yeah. be devastating, I'd imagine. It's a new form of colonization. Yes. You know? It's, it's taking over our identities and speaking for us. It's no different than it's that old toxic form for the, by the non-Indigenous population. These are just people pretending to be us and doing exactly that same thing. And I think it's very, very damaging. Mm -hmm. And I'd also like to just put a word out. I know that there are people along their journeys who were dislocated from their communities through no fault of their own, through residential schools, the 60 scoop and child welfare. And the whole thing struggle about the journey back, about who am I? Am I actually First Nations? Am I actually Métis? Am I actually Inuk? Those are legitimate and sacred journeys. Mm -hmm. And these people, they take away from that. But I think one of the things that we need to figure out is how do we encourage and support those people who are legitimately on that journey um, so that they do have an opportunity to reclaim what is rightfully theirs, that sense of belonging, that sense of culture, that sense of, of joy that comes from be, being part of a community. So we have to do a better job of that piece, too. Mm -hmm. Little Bird, the new series that's out by Crave. I saw your name in the credentials, um, the new TV series. I, I've watched, it's, there are three episodes in. Have you had a chance to, to check it out? No, I haven't yet. You'll I have a Kleenex box for that. Oh, do <laughs> I? letting you know. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I got to wait for my nephews to show up. Then. They got all that stuff. But, yeah. 
Yeah. One of the directors or the director of the series is from my community. Oh. Yeah. Ellie Meha, I believe that's how you pronounce her name, Tail Feathers. And uh, I've, I've watched it, uh, like I said, three episodes in, and I've had to pause it and just, like, cry. And, like, and yet it's so beautifully told and um, about the 60s scoop. And we're, mm. I guess, where we're at now with technology, the wonderful thing about it is that about it is we're allowed where we are now seeing ourselves be able to access information that we may not have been able to when you like look at the main character she's it's i think taking place in the 80s now and she's trying to find her family now we can actually use technology to our advantage to be able to find our people (laughs) well that's right we can and um you know and we also need to figure out how to deal with the dark side of technology with artificial intelligence and all the rest of this coming how do we uh every community has sacred ceremonies that are not intended to get into the digital space and we have to i think Uh, have an opportunity to have those conversations about how we're going to manage things like artificial intelligence, how we're going to manage phones. Uh, You know, I was stunned, but not surprised to hear that the average person looks at their phone 300 times a day, Andrea. Oh my gosh. 300 (laughs) times. I'm going to count. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I've started that too, which is I'm trying to get it down, but it's like, my God, like they, these are becoming some of our closest relationships are with technology. Yes. Instead of one another, without yes. the land, with the ancestors and with the spirit. And so um, I think as, as communities, we have to start having those conversations and young people need to be a big part of that. Absolutely. Yes. I, our daughter, like she's not going to be on a tablet <laughs> and I'm not trying to shame anyone. I'm just saying how we're decolonizing in our yeah. parenting, it's constant. I'm constantly thinking, is this colonizing? Is this going to colonize my daughter or is it going to decolonize, you know, mm-hmm. and trying to figure it out. But, you know, we learn through the land, you know, yeah. get the kids outside, let them play. Um, we did uh, an, an experience of bringing our children from our community. When I was a teacher at the, on the Blood Reserve, the middle school, that's a Gisapo. And we brought our grade six group to the different communities because we are such a large reserve. We have sub-communities and many children in in their own community may not frequent the other communities. Mm -hmm. We brought our kids to the different sub-communities. We brought them to my community, Old Agency. We brought them to the woods, opened the bus doors and let them go. (laughs) (laughs) And there was a cemetery and the, the old residential school back there, the area and the, where the Indian agent used to be. Mm-hmm. We didn't tell them this. We just let them go explore, you know, um, very objectively. And for a while there, they at first were kind of like, you know, what are we supposed to do? You know, we don't have our phones and, you know, all that other stuff. But just letting them be, then they started to explore, get curious. And you just, you just see their faces light up. And they were running and moving their bodies and picking up rocks and twigs, things that were my toys in nature and yours too. Mm -hmm. And it was beautiful. And I said, we need to do more of this. And this was already like, I think this was in 2016. And to see kids connect with the land that way, that's the classroom. You know, these walls that we're in (laughs) really... 
keep us from learning in that way. And that was one of the good things about COVID-19. I saw a lot more kids outside playing, right? <laughs> and that was fabulous, right? Yeah. But it's gone dark again, you mm-hmm. know, and people have gone, uh, even though the, the pandemic is kind of the restrictions have lifted a bit, I still, I don't see them outside as much as they used to be. So yeah. I think we're, I think, I think we have to rebalance. We need to unplug. <laughs> yeah, we need to unplug. <clears throat> So what has been said, or what do you want to be said about Indigenous children today? You know, that they that isn't have said. multi-generational strength. I, I don't like the word healing. And I don't like the word, term multi-generational trauma just on its own. I just think, I go across this country and I see these kids. And I look at them and I think, yeah, you've gone through some pretty rough stuff, but that multi-generational strength that was passed down to you is far stronger than other stuff. And that's where we stand on. That's what we got to stand on. And that's what inspires me to work, to get down some of the barriers of the unequal treatment that First Nations children on reserve have. And off-reserve too, right? The inequality on-reserve is the government of Canada funds all the services on-reserve and has done so to lesser levels since Confederation. Our legal case with the AFN has helped take down, right? Mm-hmm. And brought access in water and education and health care. All those things still sit on-reserve. And then off-reserve, you've got these provincial governments that aren't aren't adapting what they're doing for the actual needs of First Nations children. Mm-hmm. And they aren't recognizing the consequences of what I really look at as collective post-traumatic stress disorder from, from, from the residential schools. Mm-hmm. And so how do you support them in those ways, right? And also support the non-Indigenous folk so that they learn more. thinking we just live in museums anymore that they are we're part of a co-creation of a society where rights gets recognized the rights of the land that's kind of what i'd like to see uh you know for first nations kids but i really want to kind of knock home this stuff that they're not they're not they're not weak they're not um they're not healing they're more than that. Mm. Can you tell me about Spirit Bear Plan? I'm oh, aware of yeah. Spirit Bear, but for those listening and learning, oh, Spirit, Spirit bear, bear Plan is uh, well. Spirit Bear is very uh, sacred to us. He's an actual bear that has uh, witnessed all of the King Human Rights Tribunal. For listeners who may not know, the AFN and the Caring Society. Have been involved in a 16-year-long case against Canada to address the inequalities in child welfare funding, but also to get them to implement something called Jordan's Principle so kids can get help when they need it. So that that case has actually gone pretty well. So we've got over a, about $45 billion out of the feds for that case, but we're not done with them yet um, because we really see it as a sacred responsibility to make sure they don't hurt that next generation of kids. They got to learn from their behavior this time. The spirit bear plan is very simple. It's like, why are we dealing with these inequalities, Andrea, one program at a time? 
one drop at a time. Mm -hmm. Let's cost out all the inequalities. And we don't even have to do cost it out in most cases. It's already been costed out. Mm -hmm. But show where those shortfalls are and then do something like the Marshall Plan after the Second World War and fix these problems, right? Part of the colonial thing is that we got used to the unequal treatment. And so what will happen is Canada underfunds First Nations schools, particularly First Nations languages and all the rest of it. And then they'll say, well, we'll give you, yeah, we'll give you a couple hundred thousand more. But that's still far less than the non-Indigenous students. And yet they expect us to be grateful for that, right? We're supposed to have a ribbon-cutting ceremony, cake for the minister, whatever. (laughs) And I'm just thinking we have to, that's part of what we need to change, is we cannot accept for our kids anything else than the substantive equality that they deserve. They are First Nations kids deserve to grow up safely at home, be healthy, and get a good education and be proud of who they are. And we should be pushing to get, until they get that. That's what the Spirit Bear plan is. Can you share how you remain hopeful and determined throughout this government's refusal of acknowledging their systemic ongoing racism towards our First Nations children? What gives you hope, Cindy? Well, I mean, before we started this, I, I got to meet your fabulous little girl. I mean, that's exactly what gives me hope. But there's always been something since the beginning. I've always known that the kids are going to win this case. I really believe this case has been spiritually guided. It's kind of like that magnet was, that was pulling me in this direction. There were so many times when we were about to make a mistake or that uh, we didn't have an answer or a solution and the right person or the right idea would come by. And um, yeah, that's what got us here. And I really, I, I felt it. I've even felt it. Like I feel like tingling around up my back. Um, there's times in the case when I just, I know that that room is full of spirit. They're there. And they're guiding us. And then we just have to, we just have to allow them to do that. I heard you recently say, we're not alone, even when we feel oh. like it or we think we're alone. And oh, like, yeah. especially our youth, you know, you get to that adolescent age and it feels like you are alone. When you're dealing with something that seems like it's the end of the world for you. I, I thank you for sharing that message again, though. And I think all of us need to be reminded of that when we have those tough days or dark days that we're not alone. No. And like Luna Lovegood had this right. I mean, she's my favorite Harry Potter character, right? <laughs> and uh, remember, she's out in the forest and uh, with Harry, and he says he thinks he's alone. And she said, no, that's, I don't think that's true. But I think that's the way they want you to feel. Because if it's only you alone, then it's far easier to, to deal with. But if you're not alone, if, you're, if you look out and you see all the people who love you and care for you, then that's a bigger threat. And, uh, you know, that's, that's sometimes what we need to do is just look around us and, and see the people who are there. And when you're that young, I remember feeling like the bad things that happen, they just seem to stick like glue. They're so powerful. Mm. And the good things that happen, 
and the nice people that that didn't have that same thing i'd just go back to this dark space but over time you learn to balance it a bit more those emotions aren't so big and you realize that not only are you not alone you're never alone there's always the ancestors that are there there's always the spirits that are there and you're surrounded by some good people you just have to reach back sometimes and to heart for that powerful message. So we're going to uh, wrap up here, but let's just quickly circle back to what brought you to this corner of Turtle Island. Oh my gosh, (laughs) I'm so honored to be back in Blackfoot territory. I was here in, um, in, in, in the, for the Every Child Matters game, hockey game, you know? So uh, that was just earlier this year. So I teach a course at McGill, and I really believe that I want to show my students the actual documents of colonization. I don't want them just to read them. I want them to be faced with them. And McGill is a very old university in Montreal, and it has a One day, I, I was so blessed in my class to have Thomas Jurosik from Blackfoot. And uh, we were doing this library tour, and on the other, they were looking at the maps, and on the other side of the table, I saw this little book. I thought, that's interesting, so I went over. And it turned out to be a scrapbook uh, made by children in St. Paul's Residential School in 1923 to be delivered to children in a Clavic residential school in Northwest Territories. So I asked the librarians to place the book in a separate room for Thomas to go and spend a moment with it. The first person who was to see this book had to be a Blackfoot person. I have never looked at the book because I believe that it must be read by the Blackfoot person. So I, uh, we wanted to, re- I wanted to repatriate it right then. Like, it was just like, obvious, this little book had to go home. But then we had the pandemic. And so when I was at the Every Child Matters game, I talked to Tyler White, many of you know him, <laughs> and, so, and the Chiefs. And um, yeah, we put together this, this opportunity to bring the book back. And Tyler asked that I do that. So... Uh, I've been taking care of the book as best I can, along with Spirit Bear. He's been, he's with the book right now as we're sitting here for our last day together before it goes home. But Andrea, you know, I think it's so wonderful that this book, it appeared, the children and the spirits made it appear exactly 100 years after they did it. And there's another story of 100 years. The doctor, Dr. Peter Henderson Bryce, who blew the whistle on residential school, he did his report in 1907. We filed that human rights case for kids in 2007, exactly 100 years later. Wow. It just, and I I need to look at the work, but I think Dr. Bryce actually went to St. Paul's residential school. I'm going to look at that tonight. But I just feel... I, I'm going to be able to exhale when I know that book is back with your people. Because mm. that's where those, I really feel like those spirits of those children, that's where they wanted to come. Even as we left Algonquin territory today, I thought, okay, well, we're gonna, we, were, we started off in Haudenosaunee territory in Montreal. 
And I'd, I'd talk to the kids. I'd say, well, you know, today we're going to be leaving Haudenosaunee territory. And we're going to spend some time in the Algonquin Nation. That's not your home. Your home is going to be here. And as we flew and I was able to see the airline map and I could see that I was over Blackfoot territory, I thought, oh, those children's spirits must be just singing and waiting to go home tomorrow. So I, I just feel like it's a privilege and a blessing to play a small role in this. But, you know, I, don't, I can't imagine the stories that are in that beautiful book. That means to have gratitude, like thank you doesn't fully translate what it means, but, you know, for, for being part of this process and modeling that for many others who are holding many other institutions who are holding our documents, our objects that our children that also need to come home. Um, yeah, for our listeners, St. Paul's Residential School is a residential school that um, was built in my community, the Blood Reserve in Ghana. And my grandfathers, John Healy and Lloyd Fox, attended there. So this is very dear to my heart, and my family will be there, and we're so grateful to have Cindy take care of it with Spirit Bear and deliver it to our back to our community and Tyler White, who's a dear family friend of ours and all the other community members who are going to be part of repatriating it. And this is another new beginning. That's, that's how I look at it for repatriation, bringing our children home who are in the foster care system and who are in these documents. And you know, uh, Blackfoot also gave McGill a sacred gift. This is the very first thing they've ever repatriated. Oh, wow. The very first thing. And it won't be the last. They're working on a policy now, and they're going through their library collections because they have a lot of stuff. And uh, so this has been a great gift to that. Thank you, Cindy. Where will it be in five years? <laughs> um, that's a good question. I think I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm asking in Ontario or whether I'll get home. I moved to Ontario to Algonquin Territory to um, deal with these inequalities. I honestly thought back then it would take three years. Work with government, find out how much these shortfalls are. It's been 23 years later. But I am not taking an early off-ramp. I got to see this thing through to the end. That's my that's my obligation to these kids. Love it. How do you unwind? Oh, I I love thrift shopping. I do. I love going in. I love. I got so many coats, Andrea. <laughs> I do. It's not good. To Tokyo for four days, and I'll come back. That that's as much of a holiday as I can take. I get bored easily. And I love to bake and uh, oh. hang out with friends. Yeah, I, I don't like cooking, but I love baking. What's one of your favorite or famous dishes that you bake? Mm. <laughs> I make a pretty mean pecan bar. Oh, wow. And I love making bread. Oh, nice. <laughs> and being a northern girl, I know how to make a pie. Ah, you're making me hungry now. Yeah, huckleberry <laughs> pie. Oh, my gosh. And to learn from you, and I'm grateful for your teachings, and I will keep you in my prayers, and 
well, you're going to do a podcast about this wonderful book and the difference in your nation, right? Like, I mean, the stories, I can't wait for all of you to, to have an opportunity to see them, to feel them. And uh, it'll just be a, it's going to be a wonderful thing. <laughs> Absolutely. So our listeners, we have Cindy, Dr. Cindy Blackstock, who is part of our motherhood series because she is a mother to many, many, many of our children taking care of them and opening up pathways for brighter futures for them. So thank you. It's been an honor. Uh, I feel the same way. <laughs>